I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Dr. Jessica Zeter. She's an advocate and an author with a mission to create a better way to exit this life, but also change our medical culture. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. I'm so happy to talk to you. Thanks for making time for us. I have been following you for a couple of years and you're involved in intensive care and palliative medicine. And it's a combination of specialties that you normally don't see. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's an extremely unusual combination. We don't have a lot of people uh, practicing at the sort of intersection of these two very different philosophies of care, you know, where the ICU is all about, tends to be about really treating and doing and continuing to keep life going. And palliative care is really about what the patient wants, what's appropriate for the patient. And and a lot of times that really is about a focus on quality of life if a person is beginning to die. For some patients, that's important. So this is a very unusual combination of philosophies. Um, and, you know, if you had told me that I was going to get here when I first started, I would never have believed you. I mean, I went into medicine because I wanted to save lives. And I come from this long line of, of surgeons, um, male surgeons, really sort of tough guys. And um, they were just heroes in my eyes. And, and they, you know, they did just all sorts of cool stuff. And they sent people home back to home to their families. They fixed things. They And I really wanted to be that kind of person. I wanted to be like them, like the, the people on ER. Um, and But soon as I got, you know, into it, I very quickly started to have this discomfort and a little bit of a, almost a moral distress. And, you know, looking back, it was subconscious, but something wasn't feeling right to me. As this young ICU doctor in University Hospital in Newark, New Jersey, where I had just started working, to be receptive to the very early pre-actual palliative care, but the seeds of the palliative care movement, because I was very lucky that this hospital that I had just started working at was at one of four hospitals in the United States that by chance and totally unbeknownst to me had won this very impressive grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation about enhancing communication in the intensive care unit. There had been four, I think 422 applications for it and four hospitals had won. One of them happened to be this basically county hospital that I was working at in Newark. And so all of a sudden, and they, they got the grant two months. It started two months before I was hired. Totally crazy coincidence. So I'm practicing ICU medicine, kind of walking around, you know, in the ICU, sort of doing my thing. And there are these people like walking around with clipboards and, and, and looking over my shoulder and going to talk to my patients without asking me about what they understood. And I was like, who are these people? It was the family support team who now most of those members are still there at University Hospital are the palliative care team. And it was run by Pat Murphy, this palliative care nurse. And she would, she just did not suffer fool. She didn't care about the hierarchy of the ICU. She'd come in and be like, what are you doing? And one day when I was putting a large catheter into the neck of a very dying patient, she stood at the doorway and she put her hand up like this to her ear and she said, call the police. They're torturing a patient in the ICU at University Hospital. And 
Although I, I was stunned. And in that moment, I just, of course, she's right. I, I knew this patient wasn't going to be, I had been asked to put this, this catheter in to measure the, you know, to enhance, to, to, to make it possible to do dialysis. But did I really think this was going to help? No, I was being a technician. Did I ask this family for anything more than please sign here for consent? This is the risks. These are no. Did I talk to them about the big picture of care? Did I talk to them about this woman with her metastatic breast cancer was suffering multi-organ system failure? And this catheter that I was going to put into her was not going to change that. It was going to cause discomfort. It was risky. And it was going to make her husband go into the waiting room and not be able to be by her side. No, I didn't say any of that. But, you know, I look back on that moment which was a real epiphany moment for me and changed the entire course of my career. But what did I do? I, I, I didn't know how to undo it. And so even though Pat said that and she walked away angry, I put that catheter in. And I remember that, but you know, it certainly didn't change that patient's life. It, it changed mine. Um, and so, you know, I became a zealot. I mean, I kind of came to Pat who initially had just bothered me. Like, who is this woman? And I said, teach me what to do. And so she did. And she taught me. She taught me how to talk about death and dying and how to talk about the fact that, you know, there's options and we should think about, well, what will work best for you and eliciting preferences and priorities from the patient. And I did. I started to learn how to do it. And it was really hard. It was really hard. And um, but I just kept going. And so now I alternate between the two. I practice sometimes as the attending on the palliative care service, and I sometimes practice in the intensive care unit as the attending. And I find that sort of alternating between them really enriches my practice because it just shows me that it's not about where the patient is, it's about the patient. And so I take these skills that I have learned in both of these very important subspecialties of medicine, and I try to merge them into what's right for the patient. You know, you mentioned palliative care. There, I think we're gaining momentum of uh, people understanding that. But in your professional opinion, what the heck is palliative care? Still, so many people don't know. It's, it's you know, palliative care has been officially around uh, as a subspecialty since 2008, maybe 2006, but really 2008. And they're still, you know, that's relatively new, as you can imagine. So a lot of people really don't know what it is. It... To palliate means to cloak. That's the Latin word. And why I have this image in my head of like a kindly caregiver cloak, putting a cloak around a very cold and shaking person. That's sort of an image that's in my head about what palliate, to palliate means. And so you know, palliative care really is about really understanding the suffering, whether it's pain, whether it's emotional anxiety or depression, whether it's social or spiritual. I mean, there's so many layers of suffering that can happen as a person approaches the end of their life. And palliative care clinicians and the palliative care team is really equipped uh, to, to attend to any of those types of suffering. This interdisciplinary approach where we have professionals from a variety of disciplines working as, a, as teammates I think is, is uniquely, it just, it, it just sets us all up for success because people are complex and you can't just have one kind of hero doctor making proclamations about what's best for that patient. You need to have a lot of collaboration and a lot of expertise from different places. Um, but 
addressing suffering, these many types of suffering is only one aspect of palliative care. Um, there's something that's even more important, in my opinion, is this concept of really focusing on communication, really thinking about how to communicate both back and forth. So providing information and also receiving and hearing information from the patient and family. And that's just not something I was ever taught how to do before I really started paying attention to palliative care. Um, you need in palliative care to learn how to package information and obtain information and present information in a very vulnerable time of a person's life to them in a way that is supportive, compassionate, non-judgmental, and helping them to come to their truth. And it's tough. Do you find that some people don't want to talk about it, though? Do you feel like you have to pull some of this information out? Like, let's face some reality and some truth. Absolutely. Um, there are many. I hope you'll read my book because I have case after case after case of people who I have have to really figure out how to get into for reasons that are so complex. I mean, for some, it might be that my patient is, up, is in a coma and they can't talk to me. And so then I'm relying on their surrogates and maybe their surrogates don't feel empowered or don't feel they have enough information. So that's one type of communication block. Then there are those patients who really just are wanting to stay in denial. And I have so many examples of those, many, many in my own family, honestly. Well, and, you know, this is not, in my death and dying experience, working with hospice for, you know, almost 18 years and seeing some very similar individuals not wanting to talk about it, mom's not dying. And, you know, you're looking at mom and mom's actively dying. But you brought up a point of you weren't trained in medical school. And here you are in the ICU with someone with a serious illness, and you're pulling saying maybe the less of treatment would be better for this patient. How has your experience been through those years? Because it's not easy trying to convince other people to stop treatment. It's true. And, you know, again, it's, it's, it, we're in the intensive care unit. The whole sort of philosophy is about intensively treating and it was, you know, our training is so much about these catheters and learning how to use them and, and learning how to understand, you know, the, the turgor pressure in the blood, you know, in, 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 in the circulatory system. And we're so focused on that. And it's a lot of information to have to understand. So you really can, you can get lost in it. And so in addition to that, in addition to this focus on these very wonderful at times, I'm, I'm telling you, intensive care, I still love it. It really does save lives. But, you know, in addition to being able to sort of get yourself lost in, in the weeds with that um, wonderful and important information, it also feels like a failure to us. We've, you know, and, and I, you know, I struggle with that to this day, that when someone dies, oh, you know, I, I didn't keep them alive. I, you know, and I started to learn how to change that, obviously, in the, in the last since I've been, you know, 10 years that I've been really practicing palliative care. But I still feel feel like, ah, oh, you know, I feel a little bit like I failed. I feel the family might be disappointed in me. I feel my colleagues might feel like I gave up too soon. I mean, it's, it's a reality. I struggle against it. And I consistently do my best to try and really think about what the patient wants and what's best for the patient. 
But death does sort of feel like a failure for us sometimes. You just humanized a physician. Because, you know, we forget that the clinician carries a lot of that responsibility. And I, I think sometimes we forget that physicians um, are just as human as non-clinicians. And I love that. Thank you for saying that. Because I think of myself and all of my colleagues, really, as people who are trying to do good. And we care. We would never be doing this work if we didn't want to help. And we've learned to help in a certain way. And my argument is just, okay, you know what? We've got to start learning to add new things in because what we've learned is very one-dimensional and it's causing a lot of suffering. All the data shows, I mean, we know from palliative care data here that patients are dying very mechanized deaths. And we, you know, I think in the ICU are kind of at the sharp edge of that medicine where it's a particularly important place for us to start to understand and contextualize our tools and use them appropriately. We're really trying to help, but sometimes we need to be reminded how to do it and we need support on how to do it. Um, it's very hard. You know, I recently watched your award-winning short documentary extremists on Netflix. And there was a couple of scenes in there where I saw you against the wall with your white coat pausing and I wanted to, oh, I wish everyone could see the the battle that a clinician has at the bedside trying to do good, but also doing what the patient wants. So what was that like? You're on Netflix. Well, it was weird. I'll tell you. First of all, I've always believed in story as being the way to get this information out to the public. You know, it's really the way that I think we're going to help people. And that's why I do. I've been writing for many years. And I've got a lot of stories that have gone out in the New York Times, the Huffington Post, and they've drawn a lot of interesting comments from both the lay and the medical public. I think it brings the issues alive and it can be very motivating. Um, but, and of course my book, which is coming out, is gonna, it's all filled with stories. And I really believe that's a way to bring this, this, this topic to the public. But in 2010, um, when I first moved back from University Hospital in Newark and we moved back to California and I started working at Highland Hospital, there was a movie that had just come out called The Waiting Room. And I went to see it at the Grand Lake Theater with all of the people from Highland Hospital. It was made at Highland Hospital. It was, it was made, it's very worth seeing. Wonderful, wonderful film. And I was so captivated by this film. It was so brought the whole issue of access to healthcare alive, made you care about it and made you just think about it in a totally different way. And that night, at, the, at that showing where the director was, I said, we need a film in the intensive care unit. We need someone to come, a great director, like this guy who just made this film. And I went up to him. His wife actually worked with me in the hospital as a speech therapist. And I said, hey, Pete, you got to come and make a film on this topic. And I started describing it to him. And he said, oh, I'm busy with something else. And But I kept texting him for about a year, year and a half. I kept, I texted him every time I had a conversation with a patient. I was like, this is an example of what you would show. I mean, so anyway, finally Pete got tired of me texting him. And, and he, said, he said, listen, I got this friend who's between projects. And the next thing I knew, Dan Krause was there following me around with a camera and a sound guy. And, um, you know, it, it really, it, you know, the incredible talent uh, of this man is, is really uh, unbelievable. Here's a, a lay person 
to come into this environment, which is extremely stressful, and to make a film that captures it to not only to me, and I'm a real tough critic because this is I live and dream this topic, right? But to all the people I know who work in palliative care and hospice, I have can, nurses, doctors, chaplains, people are saying, oh my gosh, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I think it's ringing true to the people who, it's ringing true to the people who matter. Obviously, the real people who matter are out there, the lay public. But for people in the trenches with this stuff to say, wow, this really is hitting, um, hitting, a, hitting something for me. I feel that it's it's been incredibly successful. And so I'm, I'm very, very excited. And I'm really hoping it will get the word out. So the book is coming out. And again, it's called um, Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to End of Life. So what inspired you to write a book? Well, I have been writing pretty much since I started practicing medicine. Early in my career, you know, I was writing to really, in a sense, offset my moral distress that, uh, that I described to you earlier on. I was I needed to process a lot of the stuff that was happening. I was really so, really distraught at times. And so writing, I mean, the cases that I wrote early on in my career were really very much about moral distress. Then, you know, I'd say that once I started getting into the palliative care movement and gaining these new skills, I began to write a different kind of piece. Um, that was really more, you know, less about my own distress, but more about different ways that you can try to do things. Um, and so then I started having a few pieces accepted to to publications and, and um, writing more and more and taking some of the cases that I had had for many years before and, and kind of writing them, you know, bringing up questions because, I mean, there's no right answer to this stuff. You know, this is really complex. And for anybody to think there's, oh, good death, bad death. I mean, it's not like that. I mean, this requires... Like Atul Gawande says in his book, you know, the skills, the communication skills that are required to do this stuff require no less practice than the skills of performing surgery or putting in a catheter. This is this is stuff that has to be practiced. And and, and you know, it really it, it takes a lot of, of work. Um, but so I really would write a lot of different kinds of pieces to bring up questions and think about things in a different way and think about different ways of approaching things or how should I approach this. Maybe I could have approached this differently. And then I just got this inspired to really write the book because I think there's a public health crisis in our country. And I was seeing the response to my articles was so powerful. I mean, every article I wrote was getting 300, 200, 300 comments. And I thought, you know what, let's put this into a book. And so I was lucky enough to, to get um, this contract with Penguin. And they've been incredibly supportive. And I really spent about two years writing this book, um, pulling all these cases together into something that I hope is going to be very, very helpful for uh, people thinking about how to approach this differently, whether they be civilians or people from the medical community and the healthcare community at large. So Extreme Measures, why that title? Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, it took a lot of going back and forth. <laughs> You know, I mean, the first most obvious layer of it is extreme measures. I mean, here I am, an ICU doctor, and we take extreme measures. Um, and I think the sort of the second layer to that title is it actually took extreme measures to start going the other way, to go against the culture, the cultural pressures, to go against my training, to go against all of my inclinations, which was to keep the heart pumping and to 
make my way into a person's life and ask them about themselves. I mean, I just explained to you before all the variables that can get in the way of communication. It's really hard to do patient-centered care. People are very complex with a lot of needs, and it's a lot of work, and it takes, I'd say, extreme measures to do it. So how are you trying to change the medical culture? Well, that's an excellent question and a critically important one. I think the way to change what I'm calling the over-medicalization of death or this you know, use, the default use of this end-of-life conveyor belt is for, we really need a two-pronged approach, okay? This is a relationship. You know, the doctor-patient, doctor-patient-family relationship is two, two, three, sometimes sides. There's a lot of people involved, and I think there are ways to start intervening and impacting all of those players. And I think it can't just be, there's not one size fits all, one magic button to press that's going to fix this problem. But I do think there's one common theme, which is that everybody, including doctors, including nurses, including patients, including family members, everybody needs to change the attitude about what death is. As you said, it's it's a destination for all of us. We are all going to die. And, you know, we need to stop seeing it as a failure. We need to see stop seeing it as something that we can escape or we should escape. Uh, that we should run from as much as we can, that we should avoid or we should, you know, not talk about. I mean, it's a part of our lives. And I've just seen so many terrible things happen when people, whether it's, again, healthcare practitioners or the, the patient the patient himself or the family members, is avoiding talking about it. I think the real, that, that, that would be my first hope is that we can start to bring that reality back into our population of the understanding that death is going to happen and, and we have to be ready for it when it comes and we have to be receptive to the information, whether it's from our doctor or from our own selves, that things are just starting to wind down. Um, and that includes, of course, preparation. So there's a lot of preparation that can be done. And, and again, I write a lot about this in my, my book has two appendices and a huge resource section. There's a lot to do. I mean, the good news is this is something we can do something about. We can really make a difference. If we become empowered and educated, and, and I really am hoping that we can do that. Um, and specifically, you know, I think that uh, what we need to do from the medical community um, is we need to create infrastructure in our workday where we have the time, the space, the financial compensation to do this type of care. Because let me tell you something, when you're doing it on your own time, it's really hard. It's really exhausting. It's totally, I mean, you, we've got to build it into our medical education system and we've got to build it into our daily practice of medicine that that is an expectation, an expectation. It's, 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 it's about that's that, you know, there are outcomes that can be measured about whether or not that's being done. And that needs to be factored into the way people get compensated. So that infrastructural change within the healthcare system is really critical on the care of individual people. It's not going to be an overnight change, but your work, you, you might not feel it, but you're making a huge difference, Jessica. You are. And I believe clinicians are on their own conveyor belt called productivity. Got to see so many patients. And I feel bad for the clinicians because I think that we have put them in a world that they cannot practice the way that, that they want to. And we, we got to change it. That, let, let me just say one quick word about moral distress, which 
was begun to be talked about in the 80s by the, in the nursing community, but is now just starting to percolate into the, the physician community as well. We are suffering profound distress. It is causing burnout, particularly at very high rates in the intensive care unit community. Um, this is not good. We are practicing in ways that don't feel good to us. And we've got to be supported to practice in ways that feel humanistic and in line with why we went into medicine in the first place. So, you know, I, I think we've this hero doctor idea has just got to go. You know, this idea that there's one person making decisions who knows all the answers. It's not the way to do it. You can't a doctor, even an ICU attending needs. I think this is my personal philosophy. You need a committee of support to help you when you're going from full court press to saying, wait a minute, maybe it's time to switch the goals of care over to, you know, let's present that to the family. That's even a hard thing to do because it goes against everything in your fabric. Sometimes it's helpful to have a colleague who says, you know what, I think it's time too. let's do it together. This is hard stuff to ask even the most seasoned ICU physician to do. And I think we really need to be doing it with more sort of a collaborative approach. I mean, and for the lay public side, how are we going to change this? I mean, I think, again, get rid of this sort of fantasy of, of the hero doctor who's going to save you from your death or the magic pill that's going to, you know, fix everything. It's not realistic. I mean, it's just not when it's time, when your body starts to die, when your doctors are telling you that it's that it's that you're starting to die or if you even, you know, if you are if they're telling you and you're not listening to it or if they're not telling you, you, know, you need to go and ask. But you need to be prepared to get that information, to receive it, to process it, and really take it seriously. Because a lot of times, again, that denial, it's not going to help you. Well, I do believe that the individual, the patient, even myself, I have to own my own health care, too. It's a partnership, and it's a collaboration. Everyone needs to check out your Netflix extremist. It What a great short film. I really highly encourage everyone to buy this book. I've known you for several years. You are making a huge difference of how my generation is going to face end of life. And I am a big supporter. I'm one of your cheerleaders over on the side. And I'm going to do anything and everything to support you. And I'm so pleased that this book is going to be published and out there for individuals to read very, very soon. Thank you so much for your time and your passion. There's not many physicians that I talk to that just are so excited about educating people about death and dying. Jessica, you have a great day. Thanks for doing what you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored. Good to talk to you. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.